We're studying in the Psalms. Last week we prepared uh, about six of them, and we taught the 131st. It has three verses. So we didn't get very far, did we? So maybe we'll progress a little more tonight. I already got a check from Linda, and she said uh, if I preach past 8 o'clock, I've got to give it back. So you must... <laughs> So if y'all know why I'm in a hurry, well, maybe we can persuade her to let me go to I finish. Okay, a, a place of public worship, Psalm 132. And this psalm may have been written by Nathan or Solomon. When David was made, made king over all Israel, there was no place of public worship at that time. And so we're going to see what uh, David says here. And it says, Lord, remember David and all... It's, it's David's prayer. It says, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. Uh, the afflictions that David had were, of course, because of being a good, uh, godly person. You know, godly people suffer affliction. The Bible says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but out of them all the Lord delivers them. And so, and it says, Lord, remember David. It's a prayer for the Lord to remember. God remembered Noah. In the days when the, the flood came upon the earth, it says, And God remembered no one, save he and his family uh, through the deluge. And then God remembered Abraham when Abraham prayed for Lot and uh, delivered Lot out of Sodom. God remembered Rachel and Hannah when they prayed for children, and Hannah especially for a son. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham. When he told Moses, he said, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he says, I'm going to keep my covenant that I've made with them. And Moses took up from there. And there was another one that God remembered. Remember the thief on the cross? And he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And according to the words of Jesus, he said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And the Lord answers our prayers in memory of others. And the Lord answers our prayers in memory of Jesus, especially in His sufferings. In Ephesians 4, verse 32, it says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now listen, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So, for the sake of for God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And He answers our prayers in remembrance of, of Jesus. I want you to notice verse 2, it says, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the, the mighty God of Jacob. We'll have to read on down through verse 5. Now this is David. He swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. So David was so concerned about a place for God to meet with his people that he made a vow that he wouldn't even go to his bed or go to his house until he had settled this situation. Until I found out a place for the Lord and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Well, that was a good gesture. But you know, sometimes we do things on the spur of the moment. David, we know we know that we shouldn't swear to about anything unless we seek God's will and God's purpose about it and know God's plan for it. And of course, David was not permitted to build that house or that temple for the Lord, but Solomon 
So he says, until I have found out this, in other words, I'm going to do this, but God says, no, David, you're not going to do it. I'll let Solomon build a temple. And sometimes we make vows that we cannot keep. The Bible tells us it's better that thou shouldest not vow than that thou dost vow and, and, and you do not pay. I think you find in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it says, uh, when you enter into the house of the Lord, let not thy mouth, now listen, cause thy foot to sin. And what it's saying there is that your mouth tells that you're going to do something that you're not capable of doing. That's where it says it's better that thou shouldst not vow than, than vow and not pay. So David had good intentions here. And God's tabernacle was more important than his own. He felt a great need to, to build a temple for the Lord. And he said he made such a vow unto the God, mighty God of Jacob. That he says, surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up to my bed, sleep to mine eyes, or slumber to mine eyelids, until I find out a place for the Lord, an habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Notice, the mighty God of Jacob. In the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye... To dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste. Now this was concerning the rebuilding of God's house. He says, is it time for you to, to let God's house lie in waste? He says, now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now they had been a long time in rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And uh, so he says, is it time for you? And the, the whole point of the matter is this, that sometimes we feel that we have a right to have everything for ourselves and neglect what God's house should be. So we need to concentrate on putting the Lord first and His temple first, and then we'll uh, build our own and take care of our own needs. I had a professor one time, he was out on the road, he was an evangelist over in England during after World War uh, One. And uh, his uh, family deserted him, or or what should I say, disowned him after he became a Christian because they were staunch Catholics. And they said he either had to renounce being a preacher, a Christian, and a Baptist preacher, he'd surrendered to preach, or they would disown him, and they did. But he went all over Scotland and Ireland uh, preaching. And I remember one time he, he told me, he said, if I, that he was always worried about his family, his wife and children back home when he'd go in these places to, to preach. And he said that he knew if he took care of God's business, that God would take care of his business. And sometimes if we'll put God's business first, ours will fall in line. And if we'll learn to do that, it, it just works that way. There's been many a time we've all had to do that, and, and that's the way it should be. So the Lord t- does take first place, doesn't he? And notice something else. God's house was more important than his necessary sleep. He, wouldn't, he, he, was, he felt it more, be, to be more important than his necessary sleep. He said, I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids. As we said at the beginning of his vow, he was a little bit uh, premature in making such a vow. But he was... He did have the right motive, the right motivation. He wanted to serve God first. That was the main thing. And if we make a lot of mistakes in life, friends, let me say this. If our motives are right, God's going to overlook the, the mistakes that we make. 
if we have the right motives. And a lot of times we do make mistakes. and We're not as wise in our dealings as we need to be. And maybe we're a little hasty like David. He said, I'm not even going to go home and I'm not going to go to bed till I find a place. Well, that probably didn't happen either. But at least his zeal and his motivation was right. And then a place of, of worship is divinely chosen. That's what God expects us to have, that divinely chosen place. In fact, if you look down in verse 6 now, he says, Lo, we heard of it at Ephrata. We found it in the fields of the wood. And he's speaking of the Ark of the Covenant, the most sacred part of the furniture of the tabernacle of old, a symbol This ark was a symbol of God's presence. And it was found in a very obscure place. If you read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, let's see. 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'll read a few verses here. Beginning with verse 1. And David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the, by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart. By the way, this is a very interesting passage of Scripture because it was not to be brought in such a way. And he was following the pattern of the Philistines as they transported the ark. Disregarding God's directions as to transport it set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it into the house of Amenadab and was, that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahau, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahau went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all matter of instruments made of fir wood, even of harps, and on psalteries, and on timbrels, and on cornets, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah unto this day. Now, if you remember, the ark was to be borne upon the shoulders of a certain of the priestly family and no other way. And so when men decide to do things different than what God has described, then there's nothing but the judgment of God to face. And, uh, you know, we can't break all of God's laws and expect to get away with it. We can't break any of them and expect to get away with it. That seemed like a good idea. You know, that's faster than carrying it on your shoulders, isn't it? And it seemed to be a very logical thing to do. But uh, they found the ark in a very obscure place. They transported it in the wrong way. And in doing so, they brought down a judgment upon themselves by what was done. Now then, the place of worship back in our psalm. Let's read verse uh, 7. We will go into his tabernacle. We will worship at his footstool. The place of worship was made sacred by His presence and because of His presence. The Lord makes His place of worship sacred by His presence in it. That's why when we come to the house of God, we realize that Jesus promised, and He said, where two or three are gathered together in My name, there am I in the midst of them. And He also told us to have the presence of His Spirit 
His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is within each and every one of us who are born again children of God. And His Holy Spirit is the head in the... uh, I mean, Christ is the head and the Holy Spirit is the overseer of the things that transpire in the church. And the Bible says that Paul said to the Corinthians, Ye, plural, ye as a church, a local church, are the temple of God. So we find that that makes the place of God, the house of God, uh, very special. Then there's a prayer for the Lord's people, beginning with verse 8. Look at what it says in verse 8. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, at thou and the ark of thy strength. It says, Let the priest be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. A request for the Lord to manifest his presence. He says, Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou, thou and the ark of thy strength. If you look in Second Chronicles chapter 6, in verse 42 and 43, or 41 and 42, it says this, Now therefore, arise, O Lord God, into thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy strength. Let thy priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let thy saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Remember the mercies of David thy servant. And this was Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. So, the resting place is where God's presence is. The resting place is in His temple. The resting place is when His ark is present there. The ark of thy strength. The ark represents Christ. Uh, Every ark that we find in the Bible represents Christ. You know, there are three arks in Scripture. There's uh, There's Noah's ark. And there's the ark of, we preached on a Sunday where Moses was hidden in the ark of bulrushes. And then we find that there's the ark of the covenant that we're talking about here. And all of these represent Jesus. All of them represent Christ. And the only things that can harm us, we are protected from by being in that ark. And what are they? The judgment against a lost and sinful world in Noah's day, right? God judged a lost and wicked world and we're protected. Noah was protected in that ark. And then Satan's onslaughts. Remember Satan, the devil was trying to get rid of all the male children in Moses' day. The onslaughts of Satan. And that baby was protected in that ark. And then, if we read concerning the ark of the covenant, we'll find that the commandments that The Ten Commandments, the law, the two tables of stone were put in that ark and kept in the ark. It says they were to be kept there. So the law that would condemn us is kept in Christ. He's the ark that keeps us from the judgment of the law. So the judgment against a wicked world, because we're in it and we are part of it, we're protected in Christ. The The assaults of Satan that would come against us, we're protected in Christ. The law that would judge us and condemn us, it says that uh, no man shall be justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And it says, Cursed is the man that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. So that law would condemn us, and yet in Christ it says, There is therefore now no 
condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the law, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's Romans chapter 8, I think the first four verses. But you see, uh, the law would condemn us. Uh, The judgment of God is against the wicked world. The onslaughts of Satan would be after us. And I'm quoting, I'm just relaying back on these three arcs that you find in Scripture. Okay, let's go on with this in uh, Psalm 132. It says in verse 9, Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let the saints shout for joy. A request for the priest to be clothed with righteousness. Now, clothed with righteousness is what we all need. Now, they needed it of old, and the Bible teaches us that we're clothed with the righteousness of God too. In Isaiah chapter, let me see if I can find it. 66, is it? I think it's 66 verse 4. No, that's not right. No, it's uh, 61 verse 10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Now look. For He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. And He hath covered covered me with a robe of righteousness. So, the Bible tells us that we have the righteousness of Christ that clothes us. It's imputed to us. In the book of Romans, the last three verses of the fourth chapter, it says, It was not written for His sake alone, talking about Abraham. It was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed. And that means righteousness was imputed. It says Abraham believed God and it was accounted, it was counted or imputed or reckoned to him for righteousness. And he says, uh, Paul says, this in the book of Romans, this was not written for just Abraham's sake, but for us also. Now listen. If we believe on Him who was delivered for our offenses, that's on the cross, and was raised again for our justification, then what? It shall be imputed to us. Righteousness shall be imputed to us through our faith in Christ's death and resurrection. And then 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we believed on Him who was delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that you can have peace with God? Because you believed on Christ who was delivered for your offenses. You believed on Christ that He was raised for your justification. And you know that God has said, Okay, now I'm going to impute unto you righteousness, the righteousness of God. And therefore, there's nothing between. And you can have peace with God. You see, if you knew God was angry with you because you were unrighteous, if you knew that uh, you were not forgiven, if you knew that you were still filthy and unclean in the sight of God, you couldn't have peace with God, could you? Because God's holy. And you say, I'm a sinner, and how can I face a holy God? And there would be no peace. There would be discontent. There would be separation. There would be problems, wouldn't there? But since since God is imputed to you by your faith in Christ's death and resurrection, since He's counted and reckoned, and by the way, all three of these words are used in Romans chapter 4, 
counted, imputeth, and impute, and reckoned. So, all in chapter 4 of Romans, referring to the same thing. So, if this is reckoned to you, then you can have peace with God. And it's a, it's a legal situation. He says, now I'm going to count you as righteous. Now, you, you say, well, I don't feel righteous. I don't look like that to others. And probably we don't. Probably we don't feel that righteous in ourselves, do we? And probably we don't look as clean and pure to other people either. But God says, I'm going to count you that way. And He sees us through Christ's death and resurrection as counted righteous. Now then, after that is done, then He wants us to put on righteousness and put on the the new man and put on the right kind of clothing and try to live the right kind of life. The Bible says, The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. What seal? The Lord knoweth them that are His. That's a good seal, isn't it? But then it says, And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. See, there's two sides of that. That's where God claims us and seals us and makes sure for us, but then He tells us that we should depart from iniquity. It's just like in Titus uh, chapter 2, I believe it's verses 11 through the rest of the chapter, it says, But the grace of God, it says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation, listen, hath appeared to all men. Grace, we're saved by grace. And we make a big big uh, deal out of that because it's true. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. But then we go on, Titus chapter 2 again. It says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us. The grace that saves you teaches. teaches us, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So what is the grace that saves? It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and righteously and godly. We've given you this before. Soberly is how we live inside in all sincerity of heart before God. Soberly, inwardly, righteously, outwardly, and godly, upwardly. Inward and outward and upward. So our whole life is affected by the grace of God. And some of these folks, as, as Paul speaks of those that would turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and use it as a license for sin. That's not, you know, have, have you ever heard, uh, been accused as a Baptist, say, well, if I believe like you Baptist folks in security of the believer, I'd just go out and live any old way I wanted to, and I'd go out and live, uh, enjoy the pleasures of sin, and etc., etc. Well, Baptists don't believe that, and the Bible doesn't teach that. We don't believe that. We believe we're saved by grace, absolutely saved by grace. But we believe that that same grace that saves us teaches us to live a godly life and a holy life and to live for God. Don't ever let people cause you to think that you're using it for, as a license for sin when grace is grace and salvation is by grace. You can't do anything to earn it. You never will and you never have. You, there's, it's impossible. It's a gift of God. Lest any man should boast. But then on the other hand, 
that same grace that saves you teaches you some certain things as a Christian. And you know, if a fellow says, I'm saved by grace and he lives like the devil all the time, well, you just wonder about that, don't you? We have a little old saying, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it probably is. If he's going to live like the devil, live like a sinner, maybe he is. So don't use this business. And I'm not saying that Christians can't backslide because they do. And I'm not saying that, that anyone's perfect because we're not. But I am saying that, that if you don't have a, somewhat of a desire to live a better life and a Christian life, then there's something wrong on the inside. And that's where it takes place anyway, isn't it? Okay, let's get back to this. Where were we? Okay, in verse uh, 9, it says, Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. Certainly we should rejoice if this is the case, shouldn't we? God's uh, glory should produce joy in the hearts of God's people. Back when the temple was filled in Solomon's day with the glory of God. Let me read it for you. In uh, Second Chronicles, let's see, chapter, chapter 7. It says, Now when Solomon, verse 1, had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now listen. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord. Uh, Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down from heaven, the glory of the Lord uh, upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. They were happy about it, weren't they? And you and I ought to be happy about God's presence and God's forgiveness. All right, let's, uh, in our psalm, verse 10 it says, For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. For thy servant David's sake, God's continual presence is desired. Turn not away thy face, the face of thine anointed. We need God's continual presence. Remember Moses said, uh, God said to Moses, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. In Exodus 33. Jesus said, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Look at verse 11. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David, He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. What is he saying? An heir is promised to his throne. An heir is fulfilled in two ways. This heirship was. In Solomon, he let Solomon sit upon that throne and then further through Jesus, his descendant. And by the way, the context shows that Jesus was the ultimate goal. It says, The Lord has sworn in truth unto David, He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. And in the book of Acts chapter 2, let me see if I can find it. Acts chapter 2, it says this, beginning with verse, uh, well, let's begin with verse uh, 25. For David speaketh concerning him, that is the Lord. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. 
Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. See, Solomon sat on the throne, and then he would raise up Christ. This promise of his seed to sit upon the throne and the fruit of his loins was fulfilled in Solomon and then in Jesus. That he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that is, uh, that his soul was not left in hell, neither uh, his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. So Christ was seated on the right hand of God. And then he sent forth the Holy Spirit. Remember when the announcement was made concerning the birth of Christ to Mary. It says, uh, that holy being that shall be born of thee shall be called upon, uh, the Son of God. And says, he shall sit upon the throne of his father David. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. It was made, the promise was made again by the angel to Mary before Jesus was even born. That he would be the one that would fulfill this promise of David. Okay? Look at the next verse. In verse 12. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon the throne forevermore. So, the promise of a continual throne was upon conditions as far as the descendants of David were concerned. And remember, there were many that sat upon the throne. Solomon was the main promise made. But then, through the years until Jesus came, there were others. Now then, uh, the, the place chosen for a permanent throne was Zion. Look at the next verse. For the Lord has chosen... Zion, he had desired it for his habitation. This was the place of a permanent throne. In Micah chapter 4 and verse 2, and also in the book of uh, Isaiah, but let me read Micah 4 too. It says, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his path, for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the permanent place is yet in the future. And Isaiah 2, verse 3 says, And many people shall go and say, Come and come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Much the very same uh, passage of Scripture. And then we find in our psalm, in verse 14, always hold your place where we're studying. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. God's rest forever. The place was not only chosen to be permanent, but it was the place of His rest. And then verse 15, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Blessings are in abundance. Blessings are in abundance for Israel that will be restored someday in the future. But blessings are now in abundance for you and I. Have you ever thought about how many blessings you've received in life from the hand of God? 
We sing a song, count your many blessings, name them one by one. And it'll surprise you what the Lord has done. And then we, we know that the Bible says, Now unto him that is able to do, listen, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He's able to do exceeding. That's great. Abundantly, that's more. Above, you just it's like climbing a ladder and it going everything you go up. Above, all, not just some, but all that we ask, well, we can ask a lot, or even think, or think unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And His glory is in the church. And His blessings are upon the church. Sometimes we don't count them, but they're here. If I, you know, if I were to look around and take an inventory of the folks that are here tonight, we could look at time and time again when the Lord has answered prayers, brought us out of situations, uh, circumstances that we didn't know how to deal with, sicknesses, uh, troubles, trials, family problems, uh, church needs, and He supplied them all, and He'll continue to if we'll put Him first. He'll continue to supply all of our needs. Remember Paul told the Philippian church, he says, but my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And you know who he was speaking to? You know who Paul was speaking to? He was speaking to the Philippian church. He says that when he was in need, you did minister to my necessities. And he says, no church, listen, communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. And then he says, but my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. If you think it doesn't pay for us to support our missionaries, when we give to them, God says, I'm going to give to you. I'm going to take care of you. And we have seven missionaries now back there, plus the, the school. We support them all on an equal basis. And we need to remember them in our prayers too. Their names are up there and there's some mission, some little uh, prayer cards. And look at some of those. There's for most every one of them there. Take them and use them for bookmarks and then remember to pray for them. Because when we put God's mission and God's purpose and God's plan first, He's going to take care of the needs at home. And I think one reason God has blessed us through the years is because from the very beginning, in an old building up in the middle of Rio Dosa, next to Wind Place and Show, right in the middle of those saloons, when this church was organized, from the very beginning, we started supporting our school and missions. And Troy can remember it all. He was, he's been there. By the way, he's the only charter member that's here tonight. So he can remember all that. And it wasn't easy, easy on $10 a week to, to split that up. <laughs> but then it worked, and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The Lord took care of it. But you know, that's the way it was. God will bless you. He Just like He blessed you for giving your tithes. The Bible says, Remember the Lord well, with thy substance, the first fruits of all thine increase, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses burst out with new wine. And I've never found it to fail that when the Lord will open the windows of heaven and give you blessings if you'll just do what He asks you to do. Alright, let's go on down. It says in verse 15, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Abundantly means surely. It says, 
Not only abundantly, but I will surely bless, the marginal reference says. In verse 16, I will also clothe her priest with salvation. Clothe her priest with salvation. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. And then in verse 17, Therefore will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. He would be like a deer with horns. The red deer or the stag without horns is helpless and harmless. He needs the horns. Like Jesus in his humility, he came down and he was the lamb that was laying, led to the slaughter. And he opened not his mouth. John says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus said, I am meek and lowly in heart. But in the spring, the horns develop in ten weeks. And then he has power to defend himself, the stag or the red deer. And then what? We see Jesus in his resurrection power after three days. And he arose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And he said, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And he tells us to go on that basis. And he was to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. He says, I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. He's the light and the lamp for the Gentile world. If Jesus hadn't have been the light to lighten the Gentiles, you and I would still be in darkness because he came into his own, his own received him not. Then it says, as many as received him. So I will send thee a light to lighten the Gentiles. All are Gentiles that are not Jews. You and I wouldn't be even included had not the Lord been the light and provision for all the Gentile world. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. And it says, His enemies will I clothe with shame. Shame would be the lot of His enemies. The adversaries are clothed with shame. Psalm 109 verse 29. He will clothe your adversaries with shame. Have you ever seen that in an individual sense as far as uh, God's people are concerned? I've seen the devil oppose and and bring opposition and bring trouble and strife from the outside trying to disrupt the things of God. And you know what happens to them most of the time when it runs its course? They end up the ones in shame. If you just stand your ground, stay true to God, just let it play out and, and don't try to, to uh, avenge. And, and uh, the Bible says, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. The Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay, saith the Lord. So you don't have to worry about your enemies. Jesus said, Blessed are ye when, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says, Rejoice. Now listen. Rejoice. We don't usually rejoice when we're persecuted, do we? But Jesus said to do that. Why? He says, For great is your reward in heaven. You know, if some of the folks that are causing you trouble knew that they were just bringing you rewards in heaven, they'd quit it right away, wouldn't they? They'd probably say, I don't want to do that. I'm just making it. I'm just giving that guy more than he... And so they'd, they'd lay back. But they'll never learn and they're just going to keep, up, keep on laying up rewards for us in heaven. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but now the last statement, but on himself shall his crown flourish. He would... Christ was to be the glorious King and is the glorious King. The Bible tells us He's King of kings and Lord of lords. In Revelation 19, verse 16, the Bible tells us about Him coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, we thank You for Your patience and Your kind attention.